Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 159 of Maximize Your Influence. I am Steve Olson, and I have Kurt Mortensen here with me, live and in person from the local university where Kurt teaches his class on public speaking, and because of time constraints, Kurt's recording from a cell phone today. Ew. Ew, the quality, I'll take the blame. When there's quality issues, I'll take it. Yep, yep. Well, we appreciate you joining us anyway, Kurt, and we've got some good stuff planned for the show today. What are you teaching the kids about persuasion and influence today? I'm curious. What's on the docket? Well, we're going to start off with uh, giving them a little improv training, impromptu. For anybody that does public speaking, training on improv, thinking on your feet, always gold. And then we are going to get them ready to be great storytellers, because if you want to be persuasive, remember from your training that stories persuade without detection. Yes, yes. And for the record, I am a graduate of Kurt's public speaking class. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I remember true. the impromptu speech. That's a tough one. I mean, don't you just basically hand them a piece of paper that says, hey, this random situation is happening, go. Yeah, we've got fun ones like, hey, your roommate just overdosed at the uh, movie shop with too much ginseng. They're in court. You've got to go talk to the judge and get them free. <laughs> That's a fun one. And then, of course, you hear screaming and go outside. Your neighbor's cat stinkies when they're by a steamroller. What do you say at the funeral? You know, real life stuff. Stuff that happens every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that happened to me yesterday. Well, I'm sure the students are relieved that you've put so much thought into this. That's great. <laughs> they are. They sleep so much better at night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. We actually, on the show today, have an interview coming up, a very interesting interview with Brian Wansink about food and how we perceive food and how we're persuaded to eat it. So I think it's going to be very interesting with some cool corollaries between what the food industry does and and uh, what we all do. And I think, especially if you live here in America, it's pretty clear that the food industry knows how to persuade. <laughs> it is. It's all a science from when you go down that supermarket aisle to when you go to the restaurant to the colors of signs, the way things are packaged. Yeah. So, Kurt, I need you at some point in the future to go ahead and queue up the Homer and the Ninja. Don't, don't, don't! I actually came up with this one. Many of you remember a few years ago the uh, Verizon Wireless. And at the time, I don't think Verizon was considered to be the top dog of, of mobile service. And they probably are considered to be it now. But at the time, they had this guy with black-rimmed glasses that was allegedly walking around the country setting up new cell phone towers, saying, can you hear me now, right? And now, fast forward many, many years into the future, Sprint is, <laughs> and maybe if you love Sprint, you're going to hate what I'm about to say, they're considered to be kind of the bottom of the barrel <laughs> when it comes to the major wireless companies. They kind of have a reputation that their coverage isn't very good, and that's why they're offering these really cheap programs, because, well, the coverage is awful, and they got to tease you somehow. That's the perception by many people, and they're working hard to overcome this, and they're using a technique that we like to call reducing to the ridiculous. And so now they've hired the old Verizon guy who comes on their commercials and talks about how awesome Sprint is now, and basically says, 
Sprint has 99% of the coverage that Verizon has. Is that 1% extra really worth all the extra money that you're paying for it? And I've actually, I'm, I'm a little unclear on this, Kurt. Sometimes I think, yeah, hey, that's a good point. But I also have this feeling that, well, yeah, maybe that 1% really is pretty crappy. <laughs> I'm curious for you to weigh in. Is this guy, a, or is Sprint pulling a ninja or a blunder or a little bit of both? Maybe a little bit of both. I think that's a great coup. They went down and got the Verizon guy. <laughs> Do a little blunder because... 1% of a billion phone calls a day, I don't know what that number is, is when you do the math, you're talking about a millions of dropped calls extra more than the other carriers if you really do the math. Yeah, you know what? Actually, Verizon has a good opportunity here to play reduced to the ridiculous right back in this ad campaign and say, you know, something to the effect that Sprint says that they have 99% of the coverage of Verizon. That means they're only missing 2 billion phone calls a day. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I think that would be a pretty effective. I think they're probably the type of company that would do that. Well, that's fantastic. Right now, we are going to break to our interview with Brian Wansink. My pleasure to welcome to the show Brian Wansink. And Brian is the professor of marketing, director of food and brand lab. He's the co-director for the Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs and founder of the Smarter Lunchrooms Movement at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. He's the author of the best-selling book, Mindless Eating, Why We Eat More Than We Think, and of Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life. And I gotta tell you, Brian, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I am an emotional eater, I confess. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of funny that we've got you on the show and we appreciate you joining us. It's great to be with you guys. How did you get in on this topic? Um, what drove your passion to study how people eat? In social science, there's no expression that says, research is me-search. <laughs> <laughs> people are really driven to, uh, to research something. And it being people have some sort of internal sort of personal motivation. And mine was a little uh, boy growing up in the Midwest. Uh, we um, sold vegetables door to door. And it's just I, I was amazed how one person could buy every single thing in my little wagon in the very next house, demographically identical, could say, it would look at me like I was carrying kryptonite. <laughs> There's something that, that can tell us why some people can turn left and some people turn right. It doesn't have anything to do with the typical economic variables of, you know, education, social economic status and things like that. And I, I said, by gosh, if I can figure that out, I can help the world eat better. Okay. Okay. So I have a curveball for you. Given what your profession is, we always ask our guests, what is the worst vegetable in their opinion? And you might have a bunch of research to back this up. What's the worst vegetable? Oh, well, for, for me, it is by far, and this is a popular vegetable to some people, but for me, it's by far eggplant. I, <laughs> I've never been able, I mean, except maybe in Ratatouille, where I don't pick it out. It's, uh, I've always had a difficult time with it. And you can say, well, if you had somebody who was a you know, good cook, that would be different. It's like, well, I don't know. You know, my wife graduated in the top 10% class at Le Cordon Bleu. So I think she knows how to cook this stuff. But uh, it's always just struck me as kind of slimy and kind of tastelessly icky. I got to tell you, there's an increasingly damning case being built on the show against eggplant. You're, you're not the first to say that. <laughs> good. good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so what does it mean? to mindlessly eat? 
In my food and brand lab at Cornell, well, the place looks exactly like your home, except there's one-way mirrors and hidden cameras and there's scales underneath the place. What we do is we change things. We're going to be the lighting or who you're sitting next to, the size of a plate, the distance from a candy jar, and see how it influences people. And one of the things we found is that the average person, the average American, makes over 200 decisions about food every day. Wow. Uh, yeah, but they think, on average, they make about 25. Okay, it's just that they don't... Taken, they kind of go, well, I decide whether I'm going to eat Cheerios or Fruit Loops. But they've also decided how much they're going to pour, when they're going to stop pouring, how much milk to put in, whether they're going to have seconds, whether they're going to finish the bowl, whether they're going to eat a Pop-Tart with it. And so most of these decisions that happen are really outside of our consciousness. And it's because 175 out of 200 are ones we don't even think about. This environment around us can really easily creep in and cause us to overeat rather than eat too much. I, I mean, our research shows that an 11-inch plate causes you to eat 22% more than about a 9.5-inch plate. Mm. Having candy in your desk, you'll eat twice as much of it than if it's just six feet away. And that's almost the good news, is the same things that cause us to mindlessly overeat are the things we can change or tweak in our environment. But to eat less, to enjoy food more, to eat healthier, to love life, to... <laughs> <laughs> and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> So this one gets me, especially at, at night. In your book, you discuss the science behind comfort food. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, what's interesting about comfort food is a lot of us think of comfort foods and we, we immediately think of like, you know, the uh, chocolate lava cake or things like this. But what, what's interesting for almost half of us, our very favorite comfort food ends up being something that's reasonably healthy. It ends up being soup or it ends up being salad, it ends up being hamburger, it ends up being steak. It's not that gooey treat like that. And in fact, even for those of us who do say we love the chocolate lava cake, when we rate our second and third and fourth favorite foods, they often end up being healthy foods. So the nice thing is here is we can get a lot of comfort from maybe not our most indulgent food, but our second or third favorite comfort food that happens to be healthier. And what's interesting is we find that for guys in general, our top comfort foods are often meal-related foods. That's uh, pasta, pizza, steak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we ask people why, and we kind of get down to it, they kind of say, well, you know, I, when, I, when I eat those things, I, God, I feel like a king. I, you know, I feel like <laughs> I'm the center of the universe. You know, my, it's being prepared for me. I'm feeling really taken care of. But when we talk to women who we ask for their favorite comfort foods, very seldom is it those foods. It tends to be desserts and snacks. When we say... What's the deal? Is is pasta not a comfort food or steak? And they go, well, yeah, it is. But when I think of it, I don't think of it as really that comforting because I think of me or my mother as having had to make it. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, that's not comfort. <laughs> so, so it's interesting that most of what they've defaulted toward are the you know, either ready to eat or um, dessert foods. So, but you know, there's a cool, there's a cool thing. We just did a really cool study and this is in Slim by Design where we said, how much of one's comfort food or favorite snack do you really have to eat to be satisfied? And so what we did is we took a bunch of people and we gave them different percentages. You know, like we either gave them, you know, like all eight, you know, cubes of chocolate in a Hershey bar. We gave them four, we gave them two or whatever. And we found that if we took snack foods or people's favorite comfort foods and we gave them just 25% of how much they typically say they need in order to feel comforted, um, they felt equally comforted just 15 minutes later. They rated themselves as equally happy, as equally full, and as, uh, and as equally satisfied. 
but the key was in that 15 minutes, they couldn't just kind of surf the web and dream about comfort foods. They couldn't just sit and stare at the onion eating comfort foods. What we had them do was something that was distracting. They had to clean up their office. They had to return a few phone calls. They had to do something that took their mind off the food. And 15 minutes later, they were great with having eaten just 25% of what they thought they wanted. What do you think about that and, and the sustainability of it? How much have you looked into the average person's ability to do that over a long period of time? I, and that one's off the cuff. I hadn't planned on asking you that question. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really great question. So what we find with a lot of these changes that have been suggested, like just even in the chapter two, which is on your home, on a person's home in book Slum by Design, there's a hundred changes that people can make. And what we find is if you take a change like, let's say, using a smaller plate, which our research shows cuts 22% of your calories, or serving off the stove instead of the counter, what we find is that there's an immediate decrease in how much you eat, usually 15 to 20%. Hmm. And that'll persist for about two to three months. And then it gets cut by about a third. So that 20% decrease in calories that you initially experienced by using a change, you know, using a different, say, serving bowl or using a different, say, serving utensil or pl smaller plate or whatever, might be an initial 15 to 20%. But after about three months, it drops to about more like 10 to 12%, which is still good. Mm -hmm. But it does, we do adapt some of these, and that's why it's nice to kind of insert a new one every once in a while. Like we, we find that simply getting a person to make one to two changes every month, even if they stop using them, use two others at the, at the next point, really ends up creating a sustainable system, even if every month they're going to a different change and dropping the first one. Well, that's interesting. I've, I've always told my wife that losing weight is like credit card debt. You know, you've got to answer for every one of those calories. You got to pay off every one of those dollars and and really, you know, burning the calories a lot harder than eating the calorie. <laughs> oh yeah, boy, that that is really true. Hey, so we did this really cool research. It just just came out last week, published it in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what I did is I had data from ten thousand wireless scales from around the world. And we want to look at the patterns of weight gain and weight loss across the world. And it's similar in all countries, but let's just look at the United States, that we find that the lightest anybody is going to be during the entire year is the month of September and October. And toward the end of October, weight rises for the next 10 weeks here in the United States. I believe until, that. Yeah, until the 3rd or 4th of uh, January. But the deal is, is that, the weight gain in just those 10 weeks takes the typical person about five months to burn off. And it ends up being a lot easier to make a New Year's resolution, as you implied. It makes it a lot easier to make, let's say, an October resolution to not gain so much weight as it does to make a New Year's resolution to try to lose it. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. My perception is that Americans have a bit of a weight problem, and assuming that's correct. Why do you think that is? Food is more affordable, available, and more attractive than it's ever been in the history of, of the United States. I mean, if you look at now to 1960, in 1960, the, the typical American family was spending about 26% of their income on, on food, a quarter of it. Today, the average family is only spending 8%. I mean, I remember growing up, you'd say, oh, man, I'd love to have a candy bar. I'd, I'll just have to save up for it for three months. <laughs> and now it's like, whatever. 
I'll have whatever you you know. I'll buy whatever you have. It's not just more affordable. But it's also more available. I mean, we can buy it at every gas station. Gosh, you can buy it when you're buying computer paper at Staples. It's <laughs> sitting there. And in terms of attractive, it's so amazing. There's more, more flavors of everything. I, I mean, I just today I took my a couple guys to my lab. We went to to Burger King, and one of the guys is new. He's from Vietnam. Okay. And he saw one of those pop machines that, you know, has like, you know, a thousand and one flavors, you know, the kind of the Coke machines where you push. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I thought he he was going to have a stroke. (laughs) You know, he didn't want to leave the place. He's like, let me try this one. Those are some of the big contributing reasons. I mean, there's there's also, uh, we don't exercise as much because all the options for amusement are a lot greater than they were back in, you know, 19... 65 when we had three black and white channels that sucked but, you know. <laughs> it's those are good points i've never thought of it that way <laughs> and i shouldn't see that because we did have gilligan's island back then but. <laughs> but it was over and and so now you got to go now you can you can binge watch on netflix and order pizza right to your house or oh, it's pretty yeah. easy to do you know, nobody wants to turn the clock back and so the question is what can we do in our lives no one wants to say well, I think food should be less affordable and less available, and I think it should be terrible. No one says that. So the question, <laughs> is, the question is, what can we do in this current environment to help ourselves or families to eat a little bit better and eat a little bit less? And the key is not trying to become slim by willpower, because we've got full-time jobs. We can't sit there and stare at a pee and say, am I full yet? No. We have to set up our environment so we can mindlessly eat less and better without having to focus on it and stare at it all the time. And that's what I've spent my the last 15 years of my career doing, including the time when I was in charge of the dietary guidelines for the United States. Wow, that's wow. Great. great. So I know you've got to go here soon. Let's, let's get you on the road in just a second. Could you share a couple of quick mindful eating tips for us? The mindful eating is a whole lot less effective for most of us than mindless eating. So well, let me give you one right here. We did a really cool study. It's actually also in the book Slim by Design where we said, hey, what impact does a totally distracted, chaotic kitchen have on, on people? So we brought people into this into a kitchen that had three snacks, but it was either the rest of the kitchen was either totally clean, clean counters, no dishes in the dishwasher, no mail stacked up on the table or anything. Or we brought them into an environment that was just a mess. It was the same three snacks, but they're dirty dishes. There were it was, you know, a stack of mail sitting on the counter. There was plates all over. And we found that the typical person in the chaotic kitchen ate forty-four percent more snacks. You know, it's like if this place is out of control, why do I need to be in control? It's interesting, the other condition that we used, the other condition we looked at was we had half the people, again, uh, go through sort of this situation where they they meditated for just five minutes and thought of a calm place and things like this before they went back in the kitchen. And we found that that, too, eliminated their overeating. And it's interesting, you know, I was talking to somebody about this a while back, and they said, so you would recommend meditation to people, Mike? Well, you know, if they want to, sure, it's not going to hurt them, but it's a whole lot easier for most of us to simply do the dishes and eat less than it is to kind of say, now that I'm approaching the kitchen, let me approach in a state of mindfulness. (laughs) I mean, that doesn't work for me. Dad, I've got three kids that are playing the piano right now. Someone else is calling on the phone. 
to be mindful when I go in the kitchen is just probably not going to work. It's a lot easier to just set it up so that I eat better. And that's why I think being slim by design is easier than being slim by willpower or by mindfulness even. That's a good point. I've always said that if I leave it to where I'm making a decision, especially when I'm hungry, I'm going to lose that battle. You've got to set it up in advance. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. The, the people who do think they can win that battle or can win that battle, you know, I, I think more power to them. They're not the tip, typical people I hang around. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, that's not the average Joe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, this is, uh, this is great stuff, Brian. I wish we could have you for longer, but I know you got to run. Where can our listeners learn more? Well, if you go to the website, slimbydesign.com, you can learn more about how to make your home, your favorite restaurants, Slim by Design, where you grocery shop, your next shopping trip. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Brian Wansink. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. We, sh- we appreciate having you on the show. All right. Well, good. Well, keep up the good work, and I look forward to our next conversation together. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was some really interesting stuff from Brian. I admitted on the show that I'm an emotional eater. I like to eat my feelings from time to time. Understanding what uh, makes us mindlessly eat, that's fascinating stuff. I learned a lot. I love that type of science. All about the subconscious trigger. The techniques he talked about and that information is groundbreaking. He's known for that information and, and that type of science. Yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. Everybody, make sure you check out Brian's site. And in the meantime, make sure you follow us on Twitter at InfluenceMax or like us on Facebook. And always please subscribe to the show on iTunes or on the Windows Marketplace. We love it when you do that. It's very good for us. We will catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. Persuade with